This presentation is from Design Research 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. And now let's get into our talks. So picking up again on this theme of culture, um, and in particular how we, how we get curious about our customers, please join, and I'm a little worried about this, just for those people who can't see it, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned. However, let's find out what happens. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Yvette Cordy. Thank you and good afternoon. Uh, my passion for people and understanding people and why they do what they do led me to become a psychologist and really um, drew me to the world of research. And I've had the incredible privilege of um, spending the last couple of decades conducting research all around the world for clients in lots of different organisations to really better understand the needs and behaviours of their customers um, to design more innovative products and services. Um, I've been to trailer parks in Florida. I've been to elderly homes in Birmingham, England. I've been to family, family apartments in Madrid villages in India and tier four cities in China. And um, it's been incredible experiences for me um, to do that. And what that led me to do was to really kind of write a book that crystallised some of those experiences. And that curiosity work um, is really a combination of that practical experience I've had in going and doing those sort of immersion works with clients, as well as a combination of science. And I'm here today to share with you those insights and I'm curious and I get energised by curiosity and I hope that I can inspire you to be more curious in the work that you do with your customers and so today I want to talk about cultivating curiosity and for me where this fits within the design process is very much at the front end at that first diamond in that discovery phase and in defining the right problem to solve. I'd like to start by sharing uh, a bit of a story with you. Almost 12 months ago, I was in this beautiful seaside town in Sestri Levante for an innovation conference. And uh, in one of the sessions I participated in, I was in this room right here. And we were invited to um, participate in a paper playing game. And I got super excited because I'm like my nine-year-old son, he likes to make paper planes, I'm going to be good at this game, I can make paper planes. We were assembled into two teams and each of the teams were separated, we were separated from each other so that we could um, strategize and prototype how we were going to sort of solve the challenge. And each of the teams, we were given a ream of paper. And we were instructed to try and gain as many points as we could by um, making paper planes that would hit a target. Not unlike this one. And, and in where the area was where we had to launch these planes, we had the target, and I'm going to face it here for, so you can see it, but there was sort of a five-metre distance where a piece of tape just like this was strapped down to the floor. And so our challenge was to try and hit the target with our paper planes. So we were told 
the winning team was the team who would achieve the highest number of points. And every time we hit the target, we would be awarded 10 points. But every time we used a piece of paper from the ream of paper we'd been given, we'd be deducted one point. There were several rules. Each plane had to be launched behind the line that was taped to the ground. We had to stand behind the line itself when we were launching the plane. We had 30 seconds to launch each round of our planes and we couldn't use any other materials. We could only use the paper. One of our, pretty quickly, like we started prototyping and throwing our planes and as you just saw, I had no hope of hitting that target. And so one of our, our team members suggested, well, what if we scrunch it up? Like what if we put little wings on it and it's technically still a paper plane. And we were much more accurate at hitting the target. So we checked in with the facilitator and we said, can we do this? Is this part, like, is this within the rules? He said, nothing in the rules that's stopping you from doing that. He said, as long as it had wings, we could, it, was, it could be accepted into the competition. So at this point, we're high-fiving each other. We're like, whoa, like we've challenged the assumptions. We've got this challenge. We're... We, we were pretty confident that we were going to win. After round one, we'd scored 10 points. We did okay. Our competitors were still yet to score. They were, they were still throwing paper planes, just like these ones here. In round two, we were instructed to construct five paper planes. And at the end of round two, we had 40 points. We were well in front and our competitors were still yet to score. And at this point, we got so excited, we started scrunching a couple of pieces of paper together to get more weight and control so we could better, better hit the target. Our competitors were still using the same methods that we had before and we were well out in front. In the final round, we were asked to construct eight paper planes. We'd used so much paper, we only had six sheets left. And so we split one of the pieces, in, we, we, we split a couple of sheets in paper so that we had enough planes to launch in the final round. And in the final round, we got to watch each other from the sidelines. Our competitors were trailing us by 60 points. They had watched us and they'd started to, to scrunch up their planes as well. And in the final round, they scored 40 points. They were trailing us by 20 points. And as the game finished, the facilitator said, right, okay, hand back your sheets of paper that you've got remaining. We had nothing left. But our competitors had 14 sheets of paper, which gifted them an additional 14 points, at which point... We won. <laughs> and again, we were cheering. As we debriefed the activity, the facilitator said to us, yeah, you were curious enough to challenge the assumptions and the rules that you built around the paper plane, but you weren't curious enough to challenge all of the rules around the challenge. He said there was nothing that was stopping you from moving your target here 
or from moving the line. We had jumped so quickly into solution finding, we hadn't been curious enough to look at our problem more thoroughly. We defined the problem as how might we throw a paper plane with accuracy when in fact the real problem was how might we make the target easier to hit. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> we get presented with a problem and we jump so quickly into a solution, a prototype, let's test it, without being curious to fully understand are we solving the right problem. Who's busy? Who's working long hours at the moment? No one? Anyone pulled an all-nighter? 3 a.m. -er? <laughs> um, everyone's busy, but... The question is, how much time are we spending on defining the problem versus solution finding? Are we busy solving the right problems? In an article in 2017 um, by the Harvard Business Review, they, they, the survey found that 85% of 106 C-suite executives strongly agreed or agreed that their organisations were bad at problem diagnosis. This was a study conducted across 17 countries. The same number of C-suite executives agreed that this flaw carried significant cost. Yep, we've got a solution, but has it really solved a customer problem? Who's familiar with this term? Yep, it can be most valuable player. It can be minimum viable product. But I like to talk about this as what most valuable problem what is our customer's most valuable problem? And today I'm here to talk about this through the lens of a customer um, and using curiosity to help us understand what are our customer's biggest pain points and the biggest frictions for us to solve. So before innovation comes problem finding, but before problem finding comes curiosity. They can have a giggle at this. This is a picture of me in primary school. Um, as a kid in primary school, I used to finish my work before everybody else and then distract the rest of the class. And so I got separated. I got put into this little boxy room between two classrooms and I was handed a pile of books and I was told, when you finish these books, come and see the teacher. And to this day, there's a book that still sticks in my mind. I don't know if anyone's ever seen this. It's called Where Does a Butterfly Go When It Rains? And inside it, it talks about a bee can fly back to her hive, a grasshopper can hide in tall grass, but where does a butterfly go when it rains? And only recently did I look up this book and, and was kind of, I saw a butterfly and it, was, it stuck in my mind and I came across, across an online review and somebody said, it bugged me that it never answered the question. <laughs> This is curiosity. It's when we have a question about something and it's a compelling itch we want to scratch and it's when we want to seek out more information about something. Behavioural economist George Lowenstein developed the information gap theory uh, of curiosity in the 1990s. 
and he talks about curiosity as a critical um, motive that influences our behaviour. And curiosity arises when there's a gap between what we know and what we want to know. And so our curiosity is highest when we want to know something but we don't have an answer. But our curiosity starts to decline when we think we, when we have the answers. So we're more likely to seek out something when we're more curious. And part of it is sometimes we think we have the answers when in fact we don't. And so part of cultivating curiosity is to think about, actually, we think we know the answers to this, but do we, do we actually know them? As a simple definition, I talk about curiosity as the drive to unearth insights, and specifically from a customer perspective. And so for me, curiosity is the tool we use to find our most valuable customer problems to solve. Hey, there's lots of problems out there, but are we solving the ones that are most valuable, that are going to not only reduce the friction in a customer's life, but obviously be the most valuable from a commercial perspective? As I just kind of demonstrated with the paper plane, we could have, um, we found one problem and we got so caught up in that, but we failed to look at other potential problems that could have made our efforts so much easier. Now we know from science that curiosity stimulates the reward centre of our brain. It releases dopamine, just like extrinsic rewards such as money and treats. Curiosity is a mindset. It just needs to be activated. And so I'm here today to talk about how we can cultivate our curiosity. Curiosity is the fuel for inquiry, for learning, discovery, and that's why it's critical for organisational growth and innovation. Now, the first aspect to cultivating our curiosity is our openness, our openness to new knowledge. How many times have you kind of walked into a room or a meeting or even a user, a user testing session, you kind of go, I know how they're going to respond to this. Um, we might prejudge a problem. We think we have the answers to things and we think we've seen it all before. But we can miss really valuable insights from our customers in doing so. When we're open to new knowledge, we're open to everything. And we're, genuinely, and we're, we're genuinely open to experiencing something new. One of the um, facets or factors of personality um, is openness to experience. And um, when I studied my undergraduate psychology many years ago, we were told that our personality was a stable characteristic that didn't change over time. But more recently, we've learned that our brains are actually more malleable than we first thought, especially our openness to experience. And I actually did um, this personality questionnaire 20 years apart, and my openness to experience has actually changed quite markedly. Sample size of one, not representative of the population. <clears throat> I love this quote from musician Frank Zappa, your mind is like a parachute. It doesn't work unless it's open. The other aspect is discipline. So we can be open to new um, experiences, but we might not do anything with it. And once upon a time, I, used, I was a 400-metre hurdler many years ago. And, and a, as an athlete, that required a lot of discipline. So I would do um, similar building blocks, but no training session was ever the same. 
But my, my training occupied a place in my everyday schedule. I prioritised time and energy for it. And that's what you need to do with curiosity. It's not always the... It's looking outside. It's looking beyond the, the, um, the standard um, uh, research work that you're doing every day with customers. Sometimes those insights can come in places you never expected them. And so we can train our brain to be more curious in the same way that we can um, train our bodies to be fitter through exercise. Um, I want to share with you some experiences that I've had that kind of talks to this notion of curiosity. Uh, and I was doing some co-creation work with two separate clients and um, they weren't in the same room together, but, but I had very different experiences with them. On this side, I had one client who arrived, arms crossed, no smile, side conversations, showed a complete lack of interest in, in their customers, didn't take any notes. In contrast, on the other side, somebody... Um, this particular person walked into the room, smiling, attentive, writing copious notes. And sometimes we can kind of get caught up in thinking we know what our customers want. We're making assumptions around how they think or how they feel when, in fact, we're not even open to observing what's going on. And when we think like this, that it can put a stop to our curiosity. So what I'd like to do now is introduce you to six curiosity mindsets. Um, don't have time today to get you to do a bit of a self-assessment on um, your preferences for each of these mindsets, but if anyone's interested, feel free to reach out to me afterwards. I'm happy to share it with you. It's a very simple way of sort of saying, we have preferences for different mindsets, um, and it's recognising where our preferences or our, our lack of preference is when we're doing our deep customer work. These mindsets are a combination of both science and of my practical experience out in the field. And I found myself briefing clients as we were going into more immersion sessions around each of these mindsets as things to think about. So starting with the rebel. The rebel goes out on a limb to challenge others, rules, norms or authority to risk a better way of doing things. We can be curious, but within an organisation, if we're not bold enough to kind of push things through, then we won't get anywhere. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a client of mine and they said to me, you know what, we just don't spend enough time understanding our local customer needs. And the CEO of this particular business had come up, seen an idea overseas, had brought it in and said, right, it was a service idea, let's implement it. No one challenged him. No one asked these questions. Why are we doing this? What customer problem does it solve? Um, the idea was implemented. It cost tens of millions of dollars to implement and 90% of the services lost money. Now, that's a big example. Being the rebel isn't always about standing up to the CEO. If we kind of go back to the plane example, sometimes being the rebel is challenging the rules and the assumptions and the way we think about a challenge that we've got. It could be a very minute kind of assumption we've made that could really pivot the way we think about it. 
we build containers around our thinking. And so sometimes it's good to sort of step back and go, hey, what are, where are the boundaries of our thinking right now? And let's push them. Let's think about them differently. I invite you to bring the dissidents into the room. Sometimes there's the troublemaker, but some, what that can do is a dissident looking at a problem from a different perspective can make you look at things differently and, and, and ultimately achieve a better outcome. Um, in research, we're taught to exclude outliers. Um, I, I kind of like outliers sometimes. Sometimes we, we don't learn anything from them, but sometimes it's useful to look at outliers. The future's here, it's just not everywhere. Sometimes we can look at future needs and problems that might help us um, with a problem we're trying to solve. The next mindset is the Zen master. Um, the Zen master allows stillness and to be in the present moment. It's about not getting distracted. Um, it's about letting go of assumptions, biases, beliefs. We all walk into the room with them. And it's about creating space for curious moments. Who's ever been in this kind of meeting? Come on, you're lying. <laughs> um, we actually spend 47% of our waking hours thinking about something other than we're actually doing. So half of you in the room right now are not even listening to me. <laughs> Bingo. Half of you are already thinking about what you're going to have to drink in, a, in, a, in an hour or so. Um, so the other, the, the other stat is that every time, when we're in a deep thinking activity, Every time we're interrupted, and that might be checking your Slack, you're looking at a text message, you've taken a quick phone call, um, it can take upwards of 23 minutes to reorient yourself back into that task. Do you know how sometimes you kind of come back to something, you go, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing? Um, so I guess when you're trying to be curious and learn more about your customers, being the Zen master is thinking very deliberately about how do you block out all of those different distractions? and also to create that environment for the customer as well. The next one is the novice. The novice is comfortable asking silly questions and not having all the answers. I, I found, like, I talk to this all the time and I have to catch myself on it. I was interviewing general manager of business and suddenly he said to me something like, rr, 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 you know what I'm talking about, right? And I went, yeah, and we do it all the time. There's language that we use that permeates within an organisation, but everyone has got a different meaning or attachment to it. Being the novice is about letting go of ego and being open to being vulnerable um, and creating, being, being ready to learn. Um, I caught the latest Harvard Business Review and the thing that stuck in my mind here um, as, as, a, as a headline a few days ago, was why questions matter more than answers. And I think that that's particularly relevant for the, for the novice. It's not, we learn when we assume the role of the novice. The expert is about judgment. The novice is about deferring it. The expert answers questions, the novice asks them. The expert's ego-driven, the novice shows humility. The expert's guarded, the novice is open. 
The expert seeks the known, the novice seeks the unknown. Now, I want you to draw a picture of a bike in your mind. How does it work? How does the steering work? Where do the pedals go? Is the frame, why is the frame a particular shape? A study by cognitive psychologist Dr. Rebecca Lawson, um, she asked people to view four different arrangements of chains, pedals and frames and she then asked them which option corresponded to the usual position in a working bicycle. As you can see here, some people thought the chain went around both the front and the back wheel. In over 40% of cases, people couldn't pick the standard arrangement. It, some even thought, um, and I guess my point here is that even with an everyday object, and I've done this with people who ride their bike to work every day and they've got this wrong. <laughs> However, people who ride their bikes tend to get it, to get it right. Um, our understanding of familiar everyday objects is sometimes sketchy and shallow. And in psychology, we, we refer to this as the illusion of explanatory depth. So we think we understand familiar phenomena far more than we actually do. And I guess to think about this in the context of how your customers, are, um, what their needs are, how they're using, how they're interacting with your products and services, um, this is something to, to kind of think about and go right back to the basics. So it's Friday afternoon and I decided that we would play a game just to lift the energy and to demonstrate the point of the novice and the expert. So what I'm going to ask you all to do is to stand up and find and face a partner. then you can join, create a triad if, if everyone hasn't got a partner. I want to make sure everyone's part of a group, not standing on your own. All right, so tallest partner in your pair, put your hand up. You are, you are the expert, okay? <laughs> Don't worry, you're both going to get a chance. Shorter, shorter partner, sorry? Yes, yes. Shorter partner, you are the novice. Now, you're both going to get a chance at this, so don't, don't worry, okay? Now, so I'm, going to, I'm about to tell you what you're an expert in. It's got something to do with elephants. And whatever you say cannot be wrong. Now, the novice, you are going to curiously ask your partner questions about what they do and how they do it, okay? Is everyone ready to go? Experts. You are the world-renowned expert in teaching elephants how to parachute out of aeroplanes. Are you ready? Go. Can you hear me? Clap your hands. Can you hear me? All right. 
Okay, so let's 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 repeat that so you both get a chance of being the expert. This time, um, experts, shorter partner. You are the you are the world renowned expert. You are a bee therapist. A bee therapist. Okay, off you go. Um, bit of a bit of an afternoon, bit of an afternoon jolt. Um, how did you? Fi- how was that? Sorry, inspiring. inspiring. <laughs> um, this is obviously a bit more of a frivolous um, manifestation of the expert and the novice. But a, I wanted to have a bit of a jolt Friday afternoon. I know everyone's been sitting down all day, and and part of it is in playing this game, and it's it, it is a bit more of a playful activity. But it's really some people are far more comfortable in the role of an expert. Some people find playing the role of the expert much more comfortable. Others find um, the role of the novice much more uh, equally. And so part of that is, I guess, that conscious attention to knowing what mode we're in at different points of time. Moving on now, um, looking at the sleuth, um, the sleuth's the next mindset, which is all about um, looking beyond the obvious, taking that empathic, observant approach to seeking understanding and knowledge um, it's not, it's even before we start testing to learn and, and, and using prototypes to learn, it's, um, and it's all also, I guess, challenging, rather than going in and trying to validate assumptions, um, really trying to look more broadly around the genuine customer problems to solve and working out which ones are causing the greatest pain. Um, back in the mid-2000s, I was working uh, with Motorola and... Um, and their design team, and and they were contemplating designing a very specific device for older consumers. And we travelled the world doing um, contextual interviews, and I worked very closely with the design team, um, really trying to observe people in their their homes, out and about, and really trying to, at a a broader level, understand where sort of technology fit fit into that. And back then, we didn't have the fancy devices that we have today. They were having a lot of trouble um, from a functional perspective, they had a lot of jobs to be done. They couldn't push the right buttons. They weren't getting haptic feedback to understand that, that um, they called the people they were trying to do. And they had a lot of n- noise issues as well with all the environmental noise around them. But what we learned out in the field, like if we just focused on those functional needs, we would have missed some of those social and, emo- and emotional needs. And they wanted to fit in. They wanted to belong. They wanted to be as cool as their kids did. And... Um, you know, we learned a lot by spending time out in the field, as well as you know there was we were there was some prototyping as, that testing that went along with that. But you know, I think fast forward, I think Apple have done a great job in solving some of those problems. You can have the cooler, larger device um, where it addresses some of those functional needs, but also satisfying those emotional and social needs. Um, Barry. Marshall, a curious medical resident at the Fremantle Hospital, um, was trying to define the root cause of um, peptic ulcers, which were um, incredibly painful and also a risk for stomach cancer. Um, And he wasn't kind of getting anywhere with his research, so he truly decided to be the sleuth and experiment on himself. And he he, he cultured the bacteria in a Petri dish and he drank it. 
And within days, he became unwell. And within weeks, the bacteria had colonised in his stomach. Um, it was his curiosity that led him to discover this and to be recognised for it, uh, being awarded the Nobel Prize in 2005. Now, I'm not saying you need to kind of go to those lengths, but um, you know, I think that there's lots of different ways in which we can be um, sluice to, to better understand the needs of our customers. Have a look at these two dorm rooms here. Now, several weeks earlier, when they're vacant, they look identical. But within weeks, the marks, the personality of people, they, they're, they're so different. They, they, they look very different. And again, research has shown that strangers can walk into a room such as this and actually um, describe the personality of people from simply walking into their, their homes. And I know that um, in-home contextual interviewing is a lot more expensive than bringing people into a, a central location, but the, you know, the value and insight that you can get beyond what you're there to do is incredible. The next mindset is the interrogator. Um, the, the interrogator is a generous listener who asks questions that sometimes haven't been asked before. The interrogator sounds like quite a harsh um, mindset, but I really wanted to differentiate it from the sleuth. Um, for me, the interrogator lacks, there's no judgment, they're not applying judgment. Um, and they're prepared to use provocation with intent at times to elicit insight. But at the same time, the style is um, respectful, friendly, uh, and non-threatening. I don't know if you knew that the same letter combinations to make the word listen is also the same as silent. And I think that um, silence is an incredibly powerful tool as an interrogator. I did an activity recently where we asked people to share their life story. And no one was allowed to ask questions. We were only allowed to use body language to um, show them that we were being attentive. And because the minute you ask a question, you're heading down a particular path, an agenda. And that was a fascinating exercise. Eight minutes is, it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but it was, um, it was quite in incredible what came out of it. For me, um, I think Andrew Denton is a, is a great interrogator. Uh, and he's returning to our screens again soon. Um, I think he does a lot of things which I think as researchers we can learn from, from the way he positions himself physically on stage, chairs facing but giving people space to look away or look at each other in the, in, in the eye, status equal. I mean, I'll walk into people's homes and sit on the floor just to lower my status quite intentionally. Um, but his body language, he just, he leans in, he smiles. At times you see him put his hand up on his chin as if to say, I'm curious, tell me more. Um, and the tone, the tone is very non-judgmental. Um, his questions, he starts very safe and, and, and um, spirals those um, into far more emotional type questions. But he'll use provocation. Um, and his research is, is incredible. He, he walks in and uses that. Um, in every interview. I mean, Denton would ask very difficult questions and provocations such as this for Pauline Hanson. In many people's eyes, you're a racist. But he built a rapport and, and 
um, he, he, and a sense of trust um, to be able to do so. The last um, mindset I'd like to share with you is the playmaker. Um, the playmaker actively seeks out learning experiences and sense-making using a playful approach. And, and part of that is respect for playful exploration. I think sometimes um, the introduction of play can be quite daunting for people, um, but I've found it incredibly insightful as a tool to, to understand people more deeply. Um, I was engaged by a global consumer electronics company, um, and this isn't from that. This is this is this is here in Melbourne. So, and we were doing work in Berlin, San Francisco, and, and Shanghai to really try and understand the future needs of their customers. Um, and we know if we sit down and we say to customers, "Hey, what do you want in the future?" They can't tell us that. And so. Um, we wanted to create a bit more of a, a future exercise where we created these kind of future scenarios for people and we got them what we call body storming or role playing. We got them to act out those different scenarios. And at points we would throw what we call wrinkles or problems into the scenario to see how that sort of manifested and how they reacted to that. Um, and that was an incredible uh, tool for us, it wasn't to come up with ideas. It was really to try to get beneath and understand the needs and the motivations around this potential future service experience. And that, as a tool, was incredibly useful for us. Um, so I encourage you to think about how you can use play to, to elicit deeper insights. Um, it could be things like you know, deprivation and getting people to imagine suddenly your product or service is no longer available and how they respond to that. Um, so to finish up, I wanted to share with you um, some questions which I guess are really, I calling curiosity provocations. And um, these are, I'm only going to share one question per mindset, but they're, they're questions to reflect on, to go away sh and, uh, you know, share with someone over drinks tonight, work on Monday, over the weekend, just to think about your mindsets and, and how you currently kind of use those mindsets in your, in your customer work. So the first one, which relates to the rebel, is when does boldness become foolish? For the Zen master, how do you stay grounded when the world gets overwhelming? For the novice, what are you most afraid of, admitting you don't know everything? For the interrogator, what role can silence play in conversation? The sleuth, when are you most observant? And for the playmaker, how does play inform the outcome of your work? Um, the experiences that I've had through um, my curiosity work have been incredible learning journeys for me um, along the way. And I hope that I can inspire you to be more curious in the work that you do and that you can have some of those experiences yourself. Um, so the last thing I guess I'd like to leave you with is um, maybe you can think about your next challenge or problem um, on how to make your targets a bit easier to hit. Um, and 
Final quote, Eleanor Roosevelt, I love this quote, I think at a child's birth, if a mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift, it should be curiosity. Questions? Thank you. While uh, we ask a question, can I get Jared to come up and, and set up and, and switch those two things over? Do we have a question for Yvette while that's happening? At the back. Great talk. Thanks, Yvette. Um, you touched on really early um, about finding the most valuable problems. How, in your experience, have you gone about um, qualifying those problems? Yeah, great question. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's different ways that you can do that. So um, at, a, at a very simple tool, I'll use a mapping tool to do that, post-it notes and hierarchies between higher benefits down to lower order. Um, and, that's, and that's asking those questions around why and what's stopping you. Um, but I've also quantified them. So um, I've gone back to target audience with, with problems, customer problems, and used um, uh, uh, MaxDiff as a tool, which is a quantitative tool really to look at a hierarchy of importance of those, of those customer problems. So um, once they've been uncovered, as a way to, to quantify it. So yeah, that's a couple of different ways. Thank you, Yvette. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2018. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.